This is a Triple J podcast. I think I said this last time we spoke to her, Pip, but like Esme is literally one of my favourite interviews of all time. Is it because she's insanely bubbly? She's so smart. She lights up the room and she just has facts. She just, her brain is like a sponge. It's crazy. I complete, I'm left in complete awe every single time we chat to her. Not Mm. only because like you said, like she's just like, like the most vibrant person of all time. She's so quick, but she just like has the most insane facts like locked away in her brain and just knows everything about anything. Mm. And I think as well, it's because we learn so much every single time we chat to her, like, we're, our minds are blown about how much people in history and a- ancient history were actually just so horny yeah. and, like, so kinky. Yeah, and it's always – I know this is such a classic, typical thing to say, but, like, looking back is such a good way to understand where we're at now. And it's, you know, it's so interesting to find out from her how far we've come and some of the interesting origin stories of things that you wouldn't expect. Like, in this chat, you're going to hear about the origin story of the vibrator. Not what you would expect at all. I know. And contraception. Like, yes. apparently crocodile poo was... <laughs> anyway, there's so much. We, we talk about the origins of foot fetishes, like where that mm. comes from. We unpack, like, yeah, like people said, some really cooked sex toys in history. Oh, my God. The vajankal and the... the- <laughs> I don't even want the to one with the goat eyelashes. The go- yeah. yeah no. Okay. <laughs> we'll leave it to Esme. Wait, wait. We haven't even said who she is. Oh, okay. Quickly, oh, if you don't know who yeah. Esme is, we just assume because like we're we've had her on. We've had her on. So we love her. Esme Louise James. Her full name. She's on TikTok um, and Instagram. She's got two point three like over like millions of followers. She talks about kinky history and she's released a book called Kinky History as well. She's got a um, PhD in history, sex history. She's yeah. She's like one of the only few people in the world who does what she does. Do what she does? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Obviously, (laughs) we needed her in the room because she brings our intelligence up by like a million. (laughs) Um, So now you know who she is. Go follow her. But first, stay here and have a listen to this amazing chat. So there were a few things that um, we didn't speak to you about last time, which I'm super excited to because you did a lot. You spoke a lot about foot fetishes in particular. Yes. Um, so we really want to get into this. You wrote, foot fetishism may, be, may well be one of the most endearing fetishes, not only today, but across all human history. According to data collected by Dr. Justin Lemula, one in seven people today have had a sexual fantasy in which feet or toes played a prominent role huge one in seven huge. what do we know about foot fetishes like how far does it go back in history it's one of the fetishes we can trace all the way back to the ancient world with absolute legitimacy so one of the most famous examples comes from the letters of the philosopher philostratus and he wrote the most erotic letters about feet he was writing ones telling his lovers to go and walk barefoot so he could go and kiss their footprints and if this wasn't erotic enough he then fantasized about being trodden on and dominated by their feet and uh, thrice happy would i be if your feet would tread on me And all the way to the myth of Aphrodite, who's of course like the goddess of love and sex and beauty and all things good in the world, when they describe her in some of the most early examples of it, she is described by the beauty of her feet and the fact that from her beautiful feet, the ground can swell up with flowers and it's because of her beautiful arches and her toes and it's just, it's so clearly erotic. Um, But this traverses the whole way through human history until now. 
just this constant sense that if we don't have any other erotic parts of the body, if we can't have boobs or butts, we turn to feet. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like a lot of the description that you just said is like people talking about the beautiful arches and Mm -hmm. how beautiful it is. Do you feel like there was a point though where people turned it into like more of a kink or a fetish or do you think it was always just kink and fetish from the get-go? Well, there is examples even in ancient Egypt, right? There's uh, this hieroglyphic where they're doing a foot massage. And in some of the our ancient writings from even China, there's this idea that the feet can actually give you a footgasm. If you press a certain area of the foot, it connects to the feelings in your genitals. Um, and so there is this kind of actual bodily connection with the feet. So it's always kind of been erotic, which does suggest why we maybe turn to this as like an erogenous zone of the body to worship in a lot of people. But of course, there was these crazy examples that we talk about in the book from scientific experiments, where one study accidentally found a biological reason potentially for the eroticism of feet. And it's because the area of the brain responsible for feelings of genitalia is very close to the one for responsible for feeling in your feet. And in maybe one in seven people, they have a little crossover. Mm. That's kind of interesting as well, because you quoted the, the research from Dr. Justin, where it mm-hmm. said that most common among gay bisexual men, 21%. Yes. Heterosexual men, 18%. Lesbian and bisexual women, 15 And hetero women, 5 Yes. Why mm. such a huge jump from men to women? Well, this is something I had a little theory about because there is another study which goes back through history and it shows that foot fetishism is most common whenever we have a sexually transmitted epidemic. So in the 13th, 16th, 19th century, when we have gonorrhea and syphilis epidemics, for some reason, we see a rise in foot eroticism. So in the 19th century in brothels, we actually started to actually serve feet worship as one of the things across London and Europe that you could engage in. And when we go to the AIDS epidemic, most recently, there is a rise in magazines that cater to legs and feet erotically. Who's most affected by the AIDS epidemic? Gay and queer men. And so the fact that they are now the highest percentage of people who experience uh, desire for feet most likely is a connection to just in the last 50 years. I find that so fascinating, isn't that? Like I would safe not have sex made link. that link. Neither mm. would I, but it, it makes complete sense. Um, speaking of like sex toys and feet, yeah, there was one that we read in your book, which we were like, <laughs> we have to talk about this. It's called the vajankle. Oh my gosh. Can you please explain <laughs> what a vajankle is? The vajankle keeps me up at night. <laughs> the vajankle is my sleep perilous demon. That's what the vajankle is. <laughs> Oh my god, I can't wait to hear about it. (laughs) It was basically this prosthetic that was made and it went viral on the internet. Um, But it was a prosthetic of a foot. But it was a foot that was made into a fleshlight. Something that, you know, men can insert their parts into to self-pleasure themselves. But the penis gets inserted into like where the bone would be in the ankle. It's really weird. So you're literally fucking a foot. Um, yeah, it's not giving beautiful arches anymore, no. is it? It's not, it used to be about the form of yeah, the foot. Now it's like just the, like, I just want to fuck it. The just way the that foot. the foot works and steps yeah. and the no. nail polish. And it's like, no, just insert, <laughs> no insert it in. But this was so interesting about the company that made it. They And they still do make them, just in case anyone is interested. Mm. But you can customise your foot. You can customise the skin colour. You can customise the nail polish, the length of the toes, everything for your foot desires before you engage in sexual play with your foot but you know like they haven't sold that many but enough to keep 
them in the business. business going. Yeah. <laughs> Weren't you saying in the book as well that they had like people just begging them to make it, like yeah. asking? So there's obviously a lot of foot fetishes out there, which is amazing. <laughs> and I really want to do a whole podcast about I it. I know, to be I know. Well, we will. We I will. feel like, you know, now we've got so many different sex toys on offer. Like, mm. whatever you want is created. We've almost got to the point where you like have a whole new person, you know, <laughs> made up that you can have sex with. Well, you like, don't need a vajanko. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like AI and sex tech and whatever. But I want to talk about some of the most unusual sex toys in history. Yes. What would you say, like, back in the day were some like crazy ideas and designs? My favourite one is the original design for the cock ring, and I just think it's genuinely beautiful. The original cock ring came in uh, 13th century China, and it was initially made out of the eyelids and eyelashes of goats. So, what, like, really <laughs> delicate, like, soft. Are we weaving it? Like, well, malleable. basically, they, um, you know, I hope you haven't had anything for lunch, but they cut off the eyelids around them, um, but they would keep the eyelashes attached. And what you would do was soften the eyelashes eyelash in warm water tie it around the base of the penis so when it dries it hardens into place and you know gets tight around the, the base and then you kind of tie it into a little bow and when you're engaging in play with your partner the eyelashes are added tickle. for s- extra stimulation yeah that's it they wow. tickle you because oh. yeah. so, that whole description <laughs> i was like why didn't they just get like a leaf to wrap around or something but then serrated edges on your coochie would not feel great but this is what's it's so interesting because like the eyelashes added for extra stimulation and they were it was something they were keeping in mind even then so when they had later designs in like the 16th century of the cock ring in China they were made with jade and often in like the um, shape of a dragon with a little tongue sticking out so the, the tongue would be you know tickling the clitoris for the girl you know what that's really surprising because I really didn't think back then they gave a fuck about women's pleasure yeah they'd just be like meh it's for me they actually like this is i think one of the funniest things about human history is that sometimes we just forget facts and the clitoris was one of them um so (laughs) you know while we were caring so much in a lot of eastern philosophy about the clitoris and even early on in some european history it comes to like the 1400s and we have this man called colombo who comes around and declares that he's discovered the clitoris or what he calls the seat of venus and he's like haha there it is. Women love this. And everyone's like, wow. And so we called it the seat of Venus for a while. And there was writings of the time being like, why didn't you know that was there, Columbo? <laughs> like, oh. Babe, we all did. Yeah. And he like outed himself for not knowing. <laughs> oh, poor Columbo. <laughs> Columbo, for real babe. that's embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> it's so embarrassing but like then we just again forgot about it and now we come to today's age and men are like did you know there's like a g spot and a c spot and do you're like wow <laughs> do you reckon that like forgetting the co- the continual forgettance of it is mm-hmm. it could you probably put it down to the fact that like either women weren't writing about it because they weren't like learning mm. to write and they didn't know how to read and like just that power structure I guess in terms of like the history not being passed down I well, don't know I think it's really complex because basically what happens for the longest part of European history especially we have this idea that women are more sexually active we have this idea that women's libidos are out of control like they are sexually fierce creatures and it changes around the 18th century we suddenly realise, because we learn hashtag science, that both parties don't need to orgasm in order for a baby to be conceived. And then they're like, wait, so if women aren't orgasming, do they like not orgasm all the time? Like maybe they aren't as sexually frisky as we thought they were. We used to think that we would just touch women and they would orgasm. Um, 
So this whole thinking then changes around women's pleasure because we decide that, well, the church decides that to be less sinful in the bedroom, you have to not experience pleasure. And so if you don't both need to orgasm to conceive a baby, then you don't need to worry about pleasure. Mm. And so we don't teach these things like how to find the seed of Venus. Thank you, Columbus. Mm. Like it's no longer necessary information for the church or whoever your educators are to pass on to you. I definitely want to chat about this. Esme, like I yeah. really want to talk about like what you've learnt. I know that the church plays an important part. Yes. So <laughs> I definitely want to touch on that. But quickly, I want to talk about, um, I want to go back to sex toys because you mentioned off air vibrators. <laughs> vibrators. I didn't, like, I just thought like classic science batteries. Is that like, yeah. what about historically? When was the first vibrator invented? The first vibrator is also terrifying. Um, that should have been a sore film. Um, but the first vibrator comes around. Um, so at the kind of turn of the 19th century. Um, and it was made by this guy called Dr. Granville. But the fun fact about the vibrator is that it was historically designed for men. It was designed as a vibrating device, as a kind of cure-all device for men um, that was believed to, because of its vibrations, stimulate various areas of the nerves that needed to regenerate, like the prostates. So it was used for infertility for men to stimulate their prostates and help them become fertile again. And what's so interesting about this is that this was only just over 100 years ago. And in the writings, they state that the vibrator should never, ever be used on women because they are too sensitive. And if it's used in the wrong way, you know, women may orgasm um, and get too excited. So don't ever use a vibrator on women. Damn. Imagine. Yeah. Imagine Imagine getting excited. Imagine. (laughs) Who would have thought? Who would have thought? But I think it's so interesting. Like if this writing is just about 100 years old, in that time, our idea about the vibrator has shifted so so profoundly Mm. that not only are we just tying women to the use of the vibrator but men we use a study um in our book and it talks about the fact that 54 percent of men say that they've used a sex toy however when you interrogate that statistic 96 percent of them say they've only ever used that sex toy with a partner so they're not using it by themselves most men don't use sex toys by themselves it's very niche whereas a hundred years ago they were the only people who were allowed to use it can't believe that. I had mm. no idea. I had no idea that it came from the original thing being for men. I know. <laughs> also, like, if they had generally just used it now for their peace bot. I know. Oh, no. We're on. like begging fluid. guys. We're literally like trying. Honestly. I mean, I should send you some of the illustrations in the initial book or like the instruction manual on how to use it for men. And it looks like two skeletons just kind of like with this vibrating punching device, two men just like, well, like on the penis. It's the funniest illustrations. Wow. And this is like the medical manual of Aww. how to use a vibrator. And it's so homoerotic. And now we're just like... <laughs> No homo. It's crazy <laughs> because like we've discussed like guys sex uh, sex toys for people with penises. Yeah. And yeah, it, there's just obviously so much shame around it. And just to think that it actually originated there is kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. Sex toys now are for all bodies. Mm. And there's different ways to use every single, most devices, especially body safe devices in ways that will be pleasurable. So it's kind of like a choose your own adventure. Mm. Um, and I think that especially when it comes to things like Valentine's Day and everything, we see sex toys so heavily advertised to women, women whereas yeah. that's not it. Mm. A lot of pink. They're for everyone. A lot of yeah. pink. A lot of bunnies. I know. <laughs> um, I want to talk about contraception because this was something in the book that blew my mind. Because mm-hmm. 
Obviously, we've come so far. It's evolved so much over the years. There's a, a lot of options, I mean, for women or yeah. people with um, uteruses. What are some of the ways that back in the day people would try <laughs> to prevent pregnancy? Condoms come around in different variations across the globe. And one fact I didn't know until I wrote this book was there was actually a variation that came around in Japan of the condom. And they used tortoiseshells to create what the most accurate English translation is penis helmet. They would mould little hats for their penises out of tortoiseshells, which they would also rim so that women could also experience pleasure. So slay, again. I know, pleasure. Wow. Added pleasure. I know, added for her pleasure. It's so incredible. (laughs) Um, But some of the really interesting ones that come around uh, definitely go back to the ancient world. One of my favourite physicians, shout out Sorinus, has this idea that women should sneeze and then jump up and down 10 times after sex to let the semen evacuate from her. I don't know what the sneezing was doing, <laughs> but like just like a little added uh, added one for him. Then there's also some fantastic ideas, like in ancient Egypt. We were speaking about it just when I came in, but they had a fantastic idea of creating a suppository out of crocodile dung mixed with honey um, and inserting it inside your vagina before intercourse starts, maybe just to kill everything that's inside or maybe just to smell out the man. Yeah. <laughs> like, why crocodile out of all the... Like, that's yeah. probably the hardest shit to obtain. Well, that's, like, do you know what I mean? so interesting. Like, <laughs> what, what were they just like, oh, my little pet croc. Like, yeah. he's ready to go. <laughs> like, and it was mixed with honey. Like, mixed I was like, honey. mixed with honey... Sort of like a tampon. Because honey's stunning. It's feminine. It's, it's giving. <laughs> it's giving. It's it's glamour. <laughs> That's Adding what that sweetness is. to the shit. Yeah. No. But they also had like um, ideas that did work. One of their ones was they used the gum from an acacia tree as spermicide. And actually that one is accurate. That does act as spermicide. I mean, please oh. don't do it. Don't give yourself a UTI. But you can... So, like, you know, like, we, we have this idea that uh, ancient times that people are all very silly. And sometimes they are. Sorinus and is jumping up and down. <laughs> but other times there was some kind of logic there. Um, honey was also used in ancient Greece and they believed it um, helped uh, the sperm just kind of stick to it as it went inside. So then you could just kind of rinse your honey out and it would have all its little spermy babies just stuck to it. Wait, I kind of like, <laughs> like that. A spider web. <laughs> it's like, like a spider web. You know, speaking of like inserting all this stuff and honey in that, did they ever do anything funky with lube? Um, They did. Yeah. So lube's a really fun one. Again, I feel like every fun story comes back to ancient Greece, but um, they used olive oil. That was one of the biggest uh, I re- like reasons that we kind of exported olive oil. And it's one of the reasons that all of the vases that we have from ancient Greece that used to contain olive oil all have erotic illustrations on it. It was kind of like we would have on condom packets or oh, something today. Oh, yeah. I didn't... Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I think now like we see them, I'm like, why were they all so sex crazy? It was like, well, no, because you'd probably have your olive oil by your bed <laughs> for Ready when you wanted a little bit of lube. You're literally like, oh, I run out, babe. Can you just go to the kitchen and get some more? Get some more olive oil. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is this like fun idea that we have inserted a lot of interesting items inside of us. We sure have for many many years. <laughs> One I was talking about the other day, you know, uh, as it was coming up towards Halloween, and it happened in the 16th century that women there was a yeast that grew on rye bread at the time, and well, it still does. But they found it had hallucinogenic properties. 
And one of the best ways to insert it in a way that wouldn't affect your um, skin was straight into your bloodstream. And of course, they didn't want to touch it with their hands. So they insert it with a broomstick, this fungus, which is how they got high. And we had witches riding broomsticks. Oh, my God. Yes. I have heard of this, but I didn't know about the yeast. yeast. I just heard they were fucking themselves with the broomstick. Yeah. Wait, now it makes sense why. Yeah. yeah. I love and that. And it came from um, this, yeah, fungus on rye bread, which they then, um, you know, created into something they called the witch's brew, which was a combination of different things. But again, because it was a skin irritant, you had to insert it with something. And wow. so women would insert it with their broomsticks. And that was one of the first few reasons that we had the myth of witches riding broomsticks i love halloween yeah it's great but everyone would get really 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 (laughs) high from it and so there was this uh what they called dancing mania that took over europe which was all of these people just absolutely off their rocker and just dancing through the streets believing they were flying (laughs) sorry so just a bush door just the bush (laughs) a village door a village door I, we're in the wrong time. <laughs> I mean, apart from like the witch trials and stuff, like that does sound kind of fun. <laughs> just dancing down the street. Like. But they were having a great oh. time and there's all these illustrations that you can find and it'll just be like a naked woman standing with her broomstick, um, like holding it, trying to get it inside of her, which was really fun when it came to 1670 and sex toys were briefly banned in Europe. And so women were like, well, we know a good alternative to this. And so they started to create them and sell them out of the hand of broomsticks uh, so much so that there was a law that was put in place that was like women you need to stop creating broomsticks we've banned these stop it but again it was part of the enduring myth of witches riding broomsticks that just lasted from really the 1400s to uh the 1800s we were just fucking broomsticks yeah so resourceful i was like you can't keep a woman down you can't (laughs) keep a woman down you can't keep her down we will continue to find ways (laughs) we are resourceful there was this one really fun police report i was reading and it was just like more broomsticks have been consumed in the paris area than are strictly needed for cleaning purposes with that a police report you they were like you gotta stop these women from you go to people's themselves. houses and there's just the top missing yeah <laughs> i'm just imagining them going to the markets and just like five rooms please oh yeah <laughs> and it, it makes you feel so sad that we don't have writing from so many women at the time because you can just imagine the gossip that we were getting up to the tea the tea. Yeah, like and for it's real. all there in the writings of angry policemen. We can yeah. kind of infer what was happening, but girls were just doing it for the girls. Like, yeah. I love that. <laughs> Obsessed with that. I, yeah, you're right. It's just like the amount that we would know that we still don't know yeah. would be so much. Which is why I feel like historians like lose their mind when they find um, a woman's diary from Ooh. like, because they, they're like, holy shit, like this is like prime evidence of like what they just got up well, to going in their to, lives. I actually had one of those, um, which is really fun. And it's from a medieval writer called Trotula. Um, and for a long time, we thought Trotula was a man and it was like a medical textbook, but it was a woman. And we kind of, Piece it together because she was writing to tell women how to fake their virginity. 
And oh. it was basically a guide that was passed around to teach women on their wedding night in case they, you know, weren't a virgin because most people weren't. Yeah. Even though that's a fake construct, but, you know, just putting on my medieval hat right now. Mm. Various methods that they could do. You know, things like putting a leech on your labia until it formed a scab so that would break off during intercourse so you would start to bleed. Another one that was having a little vial of goat's blood beside your bed that you can just dash on the bed sheets once you were done. But again, Again, you know, uh, when we go back to these times, there was obviously very serious risks of uh, prosecution and consequences if she wasn't found to be, you know, pure on the night of her wedding. But also, like, most people, some people don't bleed. That's not common. Mm. So Trotula, again, we're talking about girls doing it for the girls back in medieval Mm. time, was writing all of this down because she had the skills to write it down and it was passed around orally to other women that it became really widespread, all of these various methods that you could use. Mm. Okay, so I want to talk about now because you do a lot of, um, you do talk a lot about research about like history in comparison to what we're dealing with now. Mm-hmm. You talk about the rise of dating app culture and how that's created a culture where we're more accepting of different kinds of relationships, especially yeah. open relationships and friends with benefits and casual sex. But what I found so interesting is that you spoke about how we've become way less tolerable of cheating. Mm. Mm. It was such an interesting fact. My mum found this incredible study and it basically said that in the course of 2004 to 2014, uh, we've become 10% less tolerant of a partner's cheating, which is very statistically significant. And that was 10 years ago. Flash forward to now, we think that number would be, you know, we would be even less, less tolerant. But when we do follow-up studies, what we can find out is that In partnerships before, nearly 90% of people assumed monogamy from their partner. They assumed faithfulness, but only 50% of people, less than 50% of people actually discussed it. Now that says a lot about our assumptions of relationships. And I don't think we all have those same assumptions now because in the last year, Google searches have quadrupled for terms like monogamy, polyamory, open relationships. And when we see a rise in that, we know that this conversation is happening. And I think dating apps have been something that have really helped that. A simple thing when you go onto a dating app and it says, what am I looking for? A hookup, a casual sex. Um, I'm looking for a long-term relationship. And then that opens up the conversation to what kind of relationship. And I think, you know, one of the reasons we are now less tolerant than ever before of cheating is because we have so many other options now. We have the space to discuss what you want out of a relationship and what you want outside of it. And if you're not taking that chance to communicate and have that discussion, then cheating hurts even more. Definitely. We were also talking about like just the role of like relationships and marriage now versus Mm. then. Like before it's a transaction it's like a guarantee that you have a roof over your head as a woman that you're protected you're safe you have finances whereas now we're like we don't need that yeah Mm. we are working we can have children by ourselves yeah we can do everything that we need to do so if you cheated on you're literally like like, what's the point what's the point like if you're gonna hurt me and it hurts my feelings Mm -hmm. then i can just fuck you right off but it's interesting because our standards have become a lot higher with relationships and the age of dating apps as well you know when we're looking for a partner we aren't just looking for someone who's in our locality who you know we met in high school and we're like well you know we've got a connection so we're going to get hitched because that's the thing to do yeah Yeah, this is the one (laughs) yeah um you know we've got the choice now to actually find someone who is genuinely compatible to us or multiple people who are compatible to us and someone who will actually help us grow as 
people or we can decide we don't need that. And when you have that position of independence, which so many of us are lucky that we do have today, you're not settling. Yeah. <laughs> you're not. You're actually asking what do I want out of a relationship yeah. and do I even want a relationship? Yeah, like why am I staying? Because it's not mm. like the reasons are so different now. No. And what I think is really interesting about the age of open relationships as well is that a lot of people more and more are saying that they're turning to friends for casual sex more than partners because that line of romance and intimacy is really becoming blurred in a lot of ways. And so you will have friend groups and that you won't necessarily say that they're um, in an open relationship but you have this idea of just genuine compatibility we are putting labels on a lot of things nowadays even though you know I don't think that's what the conservative media will tell you (laughs) but there is a lot more fluidity when it comes to our relationships and that's reflected in all of our statistical surveys at the same time from these research studies they're saying that people who are in consensual non-monogamous relationships have double the reports of satisfaction in their relationships, Mm. which can tell you a lot. It doesn't necessarily have to tell you that um, polyamory is the way to go. What it could tell you is that these relationships value things like communication and trust because you have to practice those things to be in a consensual non-monogamous relationship. So why aren't we just taking these principles to every single different relationship structure? Mm. You know what? You have done so much research on sex over the histories, over the years, (laughs) centuries even, thousands of years. Um, And I mean, like everyone says, like a good way to learn about the future is by learning about the past. (laughs) You know, what is something that you have learned personally um, from studying all this sex and kink? Mm -hmm. Like what's something that you take away and maybe you could like, I don't know, even forecast for the future? Nothing's new. Absolutely nothing is new, whether it comes to different relationship structures or freaky behaviours in the bedroom, nothing is new. And most of the time you'll find that it's 200, 500, 1,000 years old. What is new is the ability to talk about ways that we can engage in these behaviours and desires ethically and safely, which is exactly you know what we're doing today and also what we can do via the internet, via books, all of those different forms of media. And hopefully that's why I would like to predict in a very hopeful mindset that that's why we're going to do this differently this time around. We're going to talk about these behaviours while also normalising them and it's going to lead to a more safe, harmonious future for us. Oh, I love that so, so much. So well said. Do you think as well, because it kind of ties into what you do in your book, it's like mm. learn about the history of where things come from might make you understand your own personal relationship with sex because mm-hmm. I think what we know from reading your book is that the attitudes around sex completely changed during Christianity for like mm-hmm. West, the Western world. Which Absolutely. In the 8th century, like there was so much shame and sinfulness yes. in masturbation and sex. And like when you learn that, you can kind of reflect a bit on your own personal mm-hmm. ideas around sex and be like, oh, maybe I think that that is shameful or I feel embarrassed about that because that's just what I've been taught from X, Y, Z. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, that is one of the most important facts about you know putting history back into the conversation is that we can see where cultural ideas came from and when you do feel that guilt about masturbation and then you can learn that 
uh, only 250 years ago, it was preached that masturbation was dirty and it became a new cultural mindset to have. We can start to interrogate our own feelings about what comes up for us naturally, what we actually feel, what we desire and what is maybe just this leftover rhetoric in the back of our head. I think it helps us be more in touch with ourselves and one another as well when we are able to have that awareness and kind of start the process of both unlearning and learning. We've got to kind of say, okay, well, if us today are still feeling the effects, the ripples of hundreds of years of political control, is that really something we want to live with in our everyday life? Do I want to still feel guilty for using my bunny vibrator just because a man 250 years ago who was a whack physician said I should be? Or am I just going to sit here and enjoy the vibrations? <laughs> I mean, think about the people with the broomsticks. No, <laughs> I know what they think do. Think about the broomsticks. I know what they <laughs> do. Enjoy the tech, babe. Like, we've come so far. Just let yourself have it. Yeah. <laughs> Give it to Do yourself. it for the sisters. <laughs> um, <laughs> Esme, this is always, it's always a pleasure to chat to you. This has been such a great conversation. We've learned a million things again. Honestly, I didn't think, like, there was even more I could learn after reading your book. But yeah. Your brain just, I don't know where it comes from. It's just a uh, wardrobe of filth. I'm like the dirty Narnia. <laughs> oh, no facts, only filth. Um, Esme, thank you so much. Everyone go check out the book uh, Kinky History by Esme Louise James. We'll probably have you on again oh, very soon. Very you can't soon. keep me away. <laughs> Good. Not only does she know about the most insane random facts about sex in history she also knows so much about like how it shaped exactly where we're at now Mm. like the stuff about cheating decreasing so fascinating yeah she is an incredible woman um go follow her on instagram um and tiktok she's massive on there she does like daily videos it's great also we highly 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 recommend reading her book kinky history it is so fascinating in so much depth about like so much more than what you've just already heard in this conversation with her uh, and it's also written really funny. Oh, like, yeah. It's like not the way you would expect it. It's really, really good. Yes. Um, and obviously DM us anytime at Triple J The Hookup. Of course. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>